who are responding to a call from the Spirit to reproduce that church among the nations and the life that's in it. And we rehearsed this afternoon some of the journey of this fellowship that we call the Antioch Network. Um, through ups and downs and around corners, through deserts, and it's been a journey. And it's been a journey that no one could have predicted from vision and trying to wrestle through things, working our way back to just what, what kind of workers do we send cross-culturally and what kind of DNA do they need to have in them and therefore what kind of DNA needs to be in the church that sends them and, and then what are the hindrances that they run up against. And along that journey, um, George Miley has... He's been an advanced scout of the Spirit for all of us. Asking questions, digging deep, deep wells in the Spirit, um, mixing metaphors, uh, digging deep, deep ruts that have allowed the rest of us to kind of take our hands off the wheel sometime because we were in the ruts so securely. you got to be from a dirt road to actually get that full analogy. <laughs> a dirt road in a place where it rains. Um, but George has, with his wife Hannah, been on a journey in recent years that has been quite incredible. And when he began it, we didn't, I don't know if anybody really knew how it re- related except that we bore witness that it did to reaching the nations and to blessing the church. and So we've asked George to share some of the most recent parts of that journey and things that he's learning that we feel are integral to the commandment to go to all the earth and teach people to obey Christ and to remove hindrances to that obedience. And uh, we want to talk about some of those hindrances and we want to pray about them if we can, George, as we close out tonight, the things, if there are things in your spirit as you're sharing that we need to together agree on, just as we close, remind us we want to do that. Um, I don't know how much, are you going to tell about part of the journey with Hannah? And I'll let you introduce that if you are. So that, okay. This journey involves his wife as much as it does him. She's not here because she's writing a book about part of the journey. So if I'll let you tell that. And for those of you who don't know, I'd like to introduce to you friend and mentor and um, the lead scout of Antioch Network, George Miley. Thank you, Jason. Um, really appreciate and welcome those of you who've come this evening as, as guests. It's lovely to see you and have you in our midst. Um, the um, journey um, that Jason alluded to um, that Hannah and I have been on the last uh, 10 years is very much related to the fact that she's a German Jew. She was born in Germany in 1932. Hitler and the Nazis came to power 
in January of 1933. So she grew up as a German Jewish child under the Nazis and experienced the increasing um, intimidation and contempt and violence that the Jewish community in Germany and in other parts of Europe was experiencing. She was actually in the Eiffel, communed her hometown on the night of November the 9th and 10th, 1938, when throughout Nazi-occupied Europe there was a pogrom against Jewish homes and businesses, rocks were thrown through the windows, synagogues were burned to the ground. She was in commune that night that that happened. And soon after that night, her father moved the family to the largest nearby city of Cologne, and they um, lived in Cologne after that for a few months. Hannah was able to get uh, a place on a transport to England, and her parents went through the um, traumatic experience decision-making process whether or not they would send her and her father ultimately won the discussion that Hannah remembers her parents having and put her on a transport July the 24th 1939 out of the city of Cologne Hitler invaded Poland in September the 1st and World War II broke out and Hannah never saw her parents again since then through quite a journey we find ourselves spending half of, based half of our year out of Germany, uh, living in the region that Hannah comes from, the Eiffel uh, region, and um, half of the year based still here in the States. And the journey continues, as Jason suggested, to unfold. Um... um and, and what the subject of our talk tonight is very much comes out of that. I think we are to talk tonight a little bit about the return of Christ. The Spirit is preparing for the return of Christ in glory. And the day will come when every eye will see him and he will return and he will stand upon the Mount of Olives and he will return as the Jewish Messiah. And the Spirit today is preparing the context for Christ to come. One crucial part of that preparation is that the gospel must be preached among all nations. That's one crucial part of it. There's another crucial part of that preparation, and that is the church must be prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. And for the church to be prepared... We need to be brought together in unity. And for us to be brought together in unity, 
There must be a process of reconciliation. Because there are divisions. And these divisions are rooted in history. They live in the collective memory of nations and church traditions. And the effect of the sin that caused the divisions is still with us. And so tonight, we want to talk a little bit about that process of reconciliation. And we want to suggest that the Messianic Jewish community plays a key role in that process. So the title of our talk is The Role of Jewish Believers in Reconciliation Throughout the Church. Now, I have notes. I have these notes for you. And I'm going to give you these notes at the end of the talk. So I want you to be able to listen and relax. I'm not saying don't take notes if you don't want to, but you don't have to. I'm going to give you these notes. But I'd rather do it after I talk than now. Let's pray one more time briefly, and then we'll get into uh, the text of what we want to talk about. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us in the person of your spirit. We thank you for the experience of eternal life that we experience every time we experience your presence. And we ask you to be in these few moments and communicate to us the things that you want us to understand. We love you and we trust you. Be glorified in our midst, Lord Jesus. Amen. Jesus prayed that all of his followers would be one. That was a request that he made of his Father. It is inconceivable that the Father will not answer that prayer. Spiritual unity is bestowed by the Holy Spirit on all believers freely. You know, I just see the picture of people coming forward in a Billy Graham crusade. Here, the whole crusade is taken, the service has taken place, the message has been given, the invitation has been given, people start coming forward. By the way, that's how my wife Hannah came to Christ, through a Billy Graham crusade in England. This was back in the days, if you can believe it, she was at a relay and there was no video. All there was was the audio part. Billy Graham was up in the north of England. Hannah was down in the south. She was a school teacher. She went to a church of England and sat there and listened to the service. And Billy Graham preached from Acts 17 
the times of that disobedience God has winked at, but now he calls on men everywhere to repent. And when the invitation was given, I'm, I'm going to do this a lot tonight, you know, old men cry. She came forward. And so here's a picture of people coming forward. And as they come forward, they have unity. They have it. It's a gift. So we don't have to do anything to get unity. Satan hates this unity. It is central to his ultimate defeat. The spiritual darkness aggressively and continually attacks the unity of Christians. So if we think of Turkey, or if we think of Senegal, or if we think of Cyprus, or if we think of wherever we're thinking about and ask ourselves, how can the gospel of the kingdom be preached in this place? in such a way that those whom God is calling will respond, we have to ultimately ask ourselves, what is the spiritual darkness that is hindering people hearing and receiving? What is the spiritual darkness? I remember the first time I heard Dan Davis talk about Istanbul. You can picture it, can't you? He's such a beautiful city, so love the city. I thought to myself, you know, I've been to Istanbul. I've never known anything in Istanbul other than a sense of spiritual darkness. I spent Christmas 1967 in Istanbul, walking around, putting invitations to Bible correspondence courses in the letterboxes. On the way to India, we were hitchhiking out to India. In those days, we were young and radical. (laughs) So we hitchhiked. From Brussels to New Delhi. And spent Christmas in in Istanbul putting invitations to the Bible correspondence course in Turkish in the letterboxes. It was a city of spiritual darkness. What's the root of that darkness? What will it take to break that darkness? That's part of our journey in the Eiffel. There is a darkness in this Eiffel region from which Hannah comes and where she was born and grew up. What will it take to break that darkness? What are the roots of that darkness? The enemy knows the power of the unity of the church. It is central to his ultimate defeat, and he will attack, and he does attack. And we know that even in our own churches or in our own ministries. We know in our own marriages, in our own families, the enemy is out to destroy the unity. But you know there's something bigger than our church. There's something even bigger than the church in Austin, It's the church worldwide. It's the church of history. It's the church that was born on the day of Pentecost and has marched throughout the world over the centuries to where 
Something like a third of the human race identifies itself with Christ. What about that church? Throughout the Christian centuries, sins have been committed against the unity of the church. You know, it strikes me that to sin against the unity of the church that's kind of a grievous thing to do to sin against the unity of the church I have sinned against the unity of the church there was a time many years when my view of church history was there was the book of <laughs> was the New Testament, that was the church. And then there were all the years in between <laughs> where, you know, I treated the church with contempt, said things, did things. At least until the Protestant Reformation, but you know what happened there wasn't really complete, so and, and, and I had a view of church history that caused me to communicate. It caused me to say things. It caused me to justify attitudes that were sins against the unity of the church. Throughout the Christian centuries, sins have been committed against the unity of the church. The effects of these sins are with us today, embedded in collective memory in histories and cultures of nations and Christian traditions. So there are these divisions. In preparation for Christ's return, the Spirit is restoring spiritual unity to all the expressions of the church. I believe this is a mega trend of what is taking place today. The Spirit is restoring this unity. The Spirit is working to restore. He is working to bring us together. This is costly for all parties. It's costly. It requires a process of reconciliation that deals biblically with past sins and their present effects. So you see, it's not enough to pray for unity. Because the things that have divided us and their effects are there. So before the prayer for unity, there must be the willingness to enter the costly process of reconciliation. Where we deal biblically with the sins that have been committed against the unity of the church. In this process of reconciliation, the Messianic Jewish witness has a crucial role to play. Now, think with me just for a minute about an overview of church history. I'd like to just have you track with me on the most foundational overview of church history that I can possibly think of. 
In church history, we have the falling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and we enter what has been called the Catholic period, not Roman Catholic, Catholic, which means universal. There were years and decades and centuries where there was truly one church. That was a Catholic church. When we say in the creeds, I believe in the holy Catholic church, not in the Roman Catholic church, but the holy Catholic church. The Roman Catholic church is part of that, but it's bigger, the the holy Catholic church. The Catholic period, the Catholic period was a period where there were no divisions. The first division that took place in the body of Messiah was the division between the Jewish expression of belief in Yeshua and the Gentile expression. That was the original division. Um, Then we go into, after that Catholic period, we go into a period that we can call the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, what I'm talking about right now is Western Christianity. There's the Asian Christianity. We won't even, we can't even deal with that tonight. But in Western Christianity, we begin to get this, the rivalry between Rome and Constantinople began to produce more and more friction within the church. So we get developing the Western Church, which ultimately became the Roman Catholic Church, and the Eastern Church, which ultimately became the um, Orthodox Church. And you and I, almost all of us here, we are actually part of the Western Church. So our roots go back into the Catholic period. Those are our spiritual fathers and mothers. Not just Paul, not just John, but the other generations of followers of Christ, they're all our spiritual fathers and mothers. But even when this tension developed between Rome and Constantinople, we are part of the Western Church. And that break, it was tensions for centuries between those two branches of the Western Church. But the ultimate break came in 1054 where you get the final separation between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches. Then you get to the 16th century with the Protestant Reformation. And with the Protestant Reformation, you get the beginning of denominations, so you get an increasingly multiplicity of structures. And the Protestant Reformation time feeds in later on, actually part of the Protestant Reformation, where the free churches, and that's what I want to talk about. You know, this, by the way, the discussion we had this afternoon was a free church discussion. It was strongly free church. The free churches, what I mean by free churches, is churches like that, that are, they're just the church. They're not linked with other churches in any kind of organization, not in any kind of denomination. They're not part of the historical churches, they're just churches on their own. That actually began in the Reformation time with the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were persecuted horribly by the historic churches. And this is another thing that we have to know about church history. We Christians 
have embraced attitudes of judgmentalism and contempt for one another that have led to violence and at times physical attack. Christians have gone to war against each other. Christians have put each other to death. You know, I'm, 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 trying, to get, I'm trying to get that out. I have for years said that my parents-in-law died. I don't say that anymore. In April, we went to Auschwitz. Have you ever been to Auschwitz? 1.1 million Jews, at least, were put into the gas chambers. This was murder. People were marched into the gas chambers. Do you know the children died first? When they put the Jews in the gas chambers, it took 30 minutes, actually 20 minutes until all the screams stopped. They'd put them in the gas chamber, turn on the gas, you'd hear the screams. The screams would go on for 20 minutes. After that, everybody was dead. They waited another 10 minutes, and they went in, started carrying off the bodies. The children were on the bottom. The children died first. They cleaned out the bodies and started burning the bodies, and the next group went in. There are pictures in Auschwitz of Hungarian Jews, women and children, and old men waiting under the trees because there was so much going on in the gas chambers, didn't have time for them. Because, you know, you can't gas all those people unless you burn the bodies. Otherwise, you've got a problem with all these bodies. So they had to keep people waiting because there wasn't room for them in the gas chambers. That's murder. You know, Christians, we've, we Christians have done that to each other. And the Anabaptists were, in the early days of the Reformation, some of the uh, recipients of all that. By the way, I have to fast forward before I come back and tell you that there have been beautiful, beautiful, I've seen the videos of acts of reconciliation between the descendants of the Anabaptists, who are the Mennonites, and the Swiss Reformed people, who are Protestant. Beautiful, beautiful times of reconciliation when leaders from those two churches have come together and confessed their sins to one another and asked for forgiveness. I remember this Mennonite woman going up to this um, uh, Lutheran State Church pastor and saying, for the murder of the leader of the Anabaptists, that time I forget his name, they drowned him in the river in Zurich. I forgive you. And they embrace. They embrace. This is the power of Christ. Christ can take a German Jew whose parents were murdered in the gas chamber and give her a love for Germans. Because when we went to Auschwitz, that experience of Auschwitz I was telling you about, Hannah was there. Guess who we were with? Germans. And we stood with that group of Germans at the entrance to one of those gas chambers where the Jews all went in. 
And there was another Jew there with us. So Hannah and this other Jewish woman were there, German brothers and sisters. And right at the entry of that gas chamber, we shared the bread and the cup together. That's what Jesus can do. That's the gospel of the kingdom. That is the church. And when that becomes visible, the powers of darkness are broken. Because people see this is what Christ can do. Brothers and sisters, this is what we have done to each other as Christians. And this history must be addressed as part of the preparation for the return of Messiah. So then we get into free churches. The Anabaptists were the beginning of the free churches, but of course, as the Protestant Reformation uh, grew in momentum and came into these uh, contemporary centuries, the whole free church movement has just um, uh, multiplied and spread and become big. Sins against the unity of the church are not primarily the multiplying of groups. They are heart attitudes like pride and judgmentalism that Christians have used to justify treating each other with contempt and even violence. The attitude of the heart is the sin against the unity of the church. Let's talk for a minute about the Jewish witness to to Yeshua. That's his name in Hebrew, Yeshua. The Jewish witness to Yeshua. One Christian tradition predates all the above. Jesus was Jewish. You know, we could use another verb. Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is today a man. He was a Jewish man. He is today a Jewish man. When he comes again in glory, he's coming as a Jew. He is a Jew. The original community of his followers was Jewish. And it was recognized as belonging to the Jewish community by both the synagogue and the Roman authorities. Both recognized this. This is one of the ways that the early church escaped uh, um, the penalty for um, not uh, participating in the worship of the emperor. Jews were not required to worship the emperor, and the Christian church was Jewish. It was a part of Judaism. It was recognized that by the Roman authorities. At the first church council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, Jewish apostles and elders welcomed Gentiles into the body of Messiah without requiring them to convert to Judaism. You know, the, the, the word started getting out to these Jewish um, apostles and elders in Jerusalem. Gentiles are coming to faith. And there were those that said, well, you know, if these Gentiles are coming to faith, they've got to, they've got to become circumcised. They've got to start obeying the law. They've got to convert to Judaism. So this was a church council. And the decision of the Jewish uh, apostles and elders was, no, this is not what the Spirit is saying. 
We as Jewish apostles and elders bless the Gentile stream of faith. And we do not require them to convert to Judaism. So there will be two expressions of faith in Yeshua. There will be the Jewish expression, the natural expression, and there will be these Gentiles, kind of like a wild limb grafted into the olive tree. Kind of like that. These wild Gentiles coming to faith in Yeshua. Well, we will bless them and let them be grafted in to the real tree, which is the tree that began with Abraham. Sometime around 85 to 90 AD, the rabbis at Yavne decided that Jewish believers in Yeshua should be excluded from the synagogue. The Messianic Jewish community was no longer accepted as being part of Israel. So that was their first rejection. So now, they're not part, according to the rabbis, of, of Israel. Between the second and the fourth centuries, the church, now overwhelmingly Gentile, first marginalized, then excluded Jewish believers. Church rules required Messianic Jews to cease Jewish practices and renounce Jewish identity. So, whereas the Messianic apostles and elders had blessed the Gentile expression. Now we get the Gentile church suppressing the Jewish expression. The Gentile church adopted what is known as replacement theology. What does that mean? Well, replacement theology teaches because of Israel's unfaithfulness, God has replaced Israel with the church in his covenant promises. This teaching opened the way for Jews to be treated with contempt. You can call it anti-Semitism. By Christians for centuries. Three examples will suffice. First example. In 1095-1096, Crusaders, part of the First Crusade, on their way to the Holy Land, some of them left from Cologne, by the way, came down the Rhine Valley, robbed, attacked, and killed Jews in Cologne, Trier, Speyer, Worms, Mainz, and finally Jerusalem. There are accounts of the slaughter in Jerusalem where the crusaders were wading through blood. But even in these towns of Germany, again on the Rhine Valley, the city of Worms is where Luther defended his theses against uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. Jews, Jewish uh, uh, communities were attacked robbed and murdered by Christians with crosses on their shields. When we were in Auschwitz, there was a brother with us 
His name is Albrecht Castell. He is a member of the German nobility. A very godly man. The Lutheran. Has spent years of his life in the Ministry of Reconciliation. Was involved in the uh, Reconciliation Walk. That was, of course, especially uh, organized for the very purpose of uh, a Ministry of Reconciliation for the sins committed by the Crusaders. He knows for sure that some of his ancestors were Crusaders. That's what Christ can do. That is what's happening today. Much of it is quiet. Much of it we don't hear about. But godly people from all walks of life recognizing the time has come to address the evils that have divided us over all these centuries. Second example. In 1478, the Spanish Inquisition began to root out baptized Jews who still practiced Judaism. In 1492, Spain expelled Jews who did not convert. There is is a movement taking place today called Toward Jerusalem Council II. It is a movement of reconciliation between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. And the foundation of their sense of God's call is, if there could be reconciliation between the Jewish expression of faith in Messiah and the Gentile expression... That process could break open the way for reconciliation and unity to be restored among the Gentile churches. And Hannah and I were in a group. I wish you all could have been there because we're going to talk in a minute about telling our stories. It's a key key, uh, part of this. We're in this group. It's quiet. There are about, I don't know, 20, 30 people from France, from England, from Germany, from Austria, from Hungary, Poland. Many of them are Roman Catholics, but not all of them. Some of them are denominational Protestants. Some of them are free church people. A couple of them are Messianic Jews. And they have met together to pray for the reconciliation of the church and for God to forgive the sins of history. And I wish you could meet our sister, Farina. She's an Austrian. She's just retired. She's a PhD historian. She's a Roman Catholic. She and her husband are leaders in the charismatic renewal in the Roman Catholic Church in Austria. Lay people. If you didn't if they didn't tell you they were Catholic, you'd never know it. But they are Catholic and they are committed Catholics. And Ferena did a paper 
on the sins of the Inquisition. And then we went to prayer, and, and she was weeping. She was weeping before God for the sins of her church. Not in contempt, not in an ungodly way, not in an unloving way, in a, but just broken because of the sins of her church and the effect that those sins have had. Crying out to God for his cleansing and his working and his working of forgiveness and his working of reconciliation because this legacy of the Inquisition has left what is called today the Muranos. The Muranos are mainly brothers and sisters from Hispanic background who are today Christian, but in the family. You know, grandma used to go into the room and do some things that are actually... They are, they are, their ancestors were Jews, many of whom converted to Christianity through pressure, sometimes even by pressure of death. And these people today, many of them are in Latin America. The Muranos. And this group toward Jerusalem Council too, one of the things that they're doing is Asking God in prayer, how do we address this? What is the right thing to do? How do we address the wrongs that have produced this effect in history? The third thing that we'll say, in 1933, the Nazis came to power in Germany. German Lutheran leaders have acknowledged the role Luther's contempt for Jews had in Nazi ideology. Have you ever read some of the things that Martin Luther wrote about Jews? Martin Luther called for the burning of their synagogues. And that's exactly what happened in Reichskristallnacht. In David and Gracious Church in Berlin, there was a conference a couple years ago, Israel and the Church. And at that conference, Hannah and I were there. One of the leaders among the German Lutherans stood up and publicly acknowledged the role of Martin Luther's teaching in influencing Nazi ideology and sought forgiveness. And there were Jewish people there and there were Israelis there. That's what Christ can do. That's what the Spirit is doing. What effect does it have for a German Lutheran leader to stand up and make that kind of confession and ask for that kind of forgiveness? It breaks down the barriers. It breaks down the spiritual strongholds. It's part of the process of reconciliation. It's part of the process of forgiveness. For the first time in centuries today, we have a growing Messianic Jewish witness among us worldwide. Beginning in the 19th century, by 2003, it included a total of 400 Messianic synagogues worldwide and 250,000 believers in the U.S. alone. At the same conference in David and Grace's church, there was a brother there 
who is a Messianic Jew and the pastor of a Jewish church in Berlin. That's not the word they would use. They would say he's the rabbi of a Messianic synagogue. He told us that today in Germany, there are 300,000 Jews. I was amazed. Can you believe that? 300,000 Jews. There are Jews streaming out of the former Soviet Union who find Germany safer than Israel. And among those 300,000 Jews in Germany, he estimates there are as many as 5,000 Messianic believers among us. The Messianic movement is in the United States. The Messianic movement is in Israel. The Messianic movement is in Germany. The Messianic movement is in La- The Messianic movement is worldwide in its reach. For the first time in centuries, there is a Jewish witness to Yeshua. And this Jewish witness predates us all. We all came from it. It is being increasingly recognized that the presence of a messianic witness to Yeshua has far-reaching eschatological implications. Now, track with me on this because I'm going faster now. The presence of the messianic Jewish partner radically changes the dynamics of interaction between separated Christian churches and believers. Where we are in Germany, we have 80% Roman Catholic and 20% Lutheran. Germany, worldwide, uh, you know, total roughly 50-50 Catholic-Lutheran. You know, and the free churches in there, so you shave a little bit off of the free churches, but it's mainly Catholic and Lutheran. They've gone to war against each other. They have killed each other. These divisions are deep. They're deep. And the division between the two historic churches and the free churches are deep. Many of the free church people have been wounded, their experience, and divisions are deep. So how do, you get, how do you get all that together? How do you get the process of reconciliation going there? But once the Messianic Jews are there, it changes the dynamic. All of a sudden, here is a tradition that predates us all. Here's a tradition from whom we all came. And it changes the dialogue. It changes the dynamic. It forces us to say, whether we're Catholic or Lutheran, hey, what about our relationship with these people? It changes the dynamic. In the presence of the Jewish witness to Yeshua, both the historic Christian churches and the newer evangelical revival currents can recognize the older brother who precedes us all. This situation humbles the Gentile believers. That's a good place to start. It humbles the Gentile believers. Rather than me focusing on how right I am and how wrong you are, it might be that both of us have something that we need to repent of. 
in the face of this. Um, it humbles the Gentile believers and facilitates a common confession of sin relative to the Jewish people and the Jewish believers in Yeshua. Every teaching that asserts that God has abandoned his covenant with Israel and every teaching that separates Jesus from his own people is inherently divisive. Why is that? One, it makes the new covenant order dependent on God breaking his covenant. God made all these promises to Israel, but Israel was unfaithful. Therefore, God broke those promises and made them with the church. But of course, that means he would never break his covenant with us because we... (laughs) You know. Does Israel have any corner on being unfaithful? Or... You know, is this, you know, now there's some that are so positive in the church, they don't think, but you know, read the book of Revelation. Some of the harshest things ever said to the church was said by the Lord. So let's admit the church is also not perfect, and we as a church have plenty of room to repent as a church. Not only for our sins today, but for the sins of history. You know, you might say, well, gee, I mean, I don't want to get into this because we don't have time. How can I repent for something I didn't do? You know, they, they did it hundreds of years ago. I can't repent for something I, did, something I didn't do, but I have to respond to what my forefathers did. How am I going to respond to that? What does God want me to do about that? It also introduces, the, if, if, if we say God's abandoned his covenant with Israel and replaced the church, it introduces a spirit of judgmentalism. New claimants to be the authentic church replace those judged to be rebellious and not apostate. See, we say, well, we're really the church. These other people, they're not really the church, but we're really the church. Then all of a sudden, there are new things that look back on us and say, well, that's not really the church. And so, could it be that the initial decision to suppress the Jewish witness introduced into the church this spirit of divisiveness? Now, again, from our point of view, the real problem is not all the different groups. The problem is the heart attitudes that continue the, uh, the divisions that all that has, has uh, created. Replacement theology replaces the one new man model of church unity of Ephesians 2. The one new man, Jew and Gentile, made one in the body of Messiah. One thing that helps us get at that, maybe, the term body of Christ is familiar to us, body of Christ. Try every now and then using the terminology body of Messiah, the body of Messiah. The breach between her messianic and Gentile expressions was the initial rupture in the body of Messiah. A biblical process of reconciliation between them can point the way for reconciliation among Gentile churches. Now, 
Let me close. The time has come for me to be winding this up. So let me just talk to you about the stages. That would be a word to use. The stages of reconciliation. What does reconciliation look like? What does this process look like? What is the biblical process of reconciliation? One, we invite Jesus into our midst. We submit to him and study his teaching. He spoke the most reliable information ever as to how life can be lived successfully. Only he can heal the deep, far-reaching wounds of history. We invite Jesus into our midst. Five weeks ago, Hannah and I were in Austria praying with this group of Europeans. And Father Peter Hawken, who was at our Antioch gathering in Heronhood, he said to me, you know, you need to meet Sister Agnes. Now, whenever Peter says, I need to meet somebody, I, I'm ready to meet them. Sister Agnes, who is she? Well, she's a, she's a nun. She's a Melkite Catholic nun. I thought, Melkite Catholic? I don't know. What is, what is a Melkite Catholic? I didn't even know for sure what a Melkite Catholic was. Turns out it's actually an Eastern Catholic. Not Roman Catholic, but Eastern Catholic. But they're in fellowship with Rome, but they're not part of the Roman Catholic Church. Anyway, this is Sister Agnes. <laughs> Sister Agnes, two days later, walks in the room. You, can, you can't miss her. She's got her habit on. And she sees Hannah. And she walks up to Hannah and she says to Hannah, I am grafted into you. And of course she was speaking to Hannah as a Messianic Jew. So we sit down with Sister Agnes. She's got tattoos, by the way. (laughs) Sister Agnes has got tattoos. And we thought, well, that must be part of her order. Maybe to be a Melkite Catholic, you have to have tattoos. I don't know. We asked her about it. She used to be a hippie. So she got her tattoos when she was a hippie. Since then, she's come to Jesus. And not only is she a nun, she's a mother superior of this monastery. In fact, she's the one that started the monastery. The monastery is on the road from Antioch to Jerusalem in Syria. There's a road that goes from Antioch to Aleppo and then down to Damascus, down to Amman, over to Jerusalem. Her monastery is on the road, Sister Agnes. And we're sitting there talking to her and we discover, we discover her father is Palestinian. And her mother is Lebanese and she is Arab. And she goes to Jerusalem because she's got herself a French passport. I don't know how she did that, but I think Sister Agnes can swing it, boy. She can make it happen. And the day that we left, we all went out to lunch in Bratislava, Slovakia. It's right near where we were. And all of a sudden, we took a picture of Sister Agnes And on one side of her was an Israeli Jew. And on the other side of her, there was Hannah, a Jew of the diaspora. And they were embracing. 
Here is a Melkite Catholic nun who is actually, her father's a Palestinian Arab, brought together with an Israeli Jew and a Jew of the diaspora. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. That is the gospel of the kingdom. That is the power that Jesus has. He brings people together. He breaks down the division between Jew and Arab. He breaks down the division between Jew and Gentile. He breaks down the division between Orthodox and Catholic. He breaks down the division between Catholic and Protestant. He breaks down the division between the denominations and the free churches. Jesus smashes all those uh, barriers. And teaches us to forgive one another and love one another as he loved us. And when he hung on the cross and they passed before him and mocked him and said, if you are the son of God, come down off that cross and we will believe you saved others. You can't save yourself. They mocked him. They mocked him. And he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's who Jesus is. Anybody want to sign up for apprenticeship to Jesus? Because that's where it's going to take you. So, the process of reconciliation. One, we invite Jesus into our midst. Two, we listen compassionately to each other's stories. We listen to each other's stories. Jew and Arab need to listen to one another's stories. I was in a meeting, Messianic leaders, Arab leaders, both Israeli, Germans as well. Interesting setup. And he was a Messianic pastor, and he spoke. And he said to the Arab brothers and sisters, this is what he said, we Jews in Israel have made you second-class citizens in your own country, and I'm here to confess that and ask for your forgiveness. And when he sat down, an Arab brother was asked to respond. And this beautiful Arab brother, he, he just a beautiful brother, he, he just said, you know, he said, I don't know what to say. That's what he said. I don't know what to say. And in the end, they embraced. That's what Jesus can do. But we need to tell our stories. People need to hear the stories. Thirdly, we confess the truth. You see, the truth must be told, brothers and sisters. We're not going to get anywhere until we tell the truth. We have to tell the truth. That's confession. That's biblical confession. That's what it is, telling the truth. Telling the truth. We confess the truth. We own the wrongs we or members of our group have committed We bring our sins to the cross. The cross of Jesus can redeem them. As appropriate, we confess the sins to those we have wronged. The cross of Jesus, we we were talking about that earlier. The cross of Jesus has the power to redeem sin. Point number four, we seek to make restitution wherever possible. Restitution makes our confession real. We really mean it. Is there anything we do? Sometimes we can't make restitution, but we make restitution wherever we can. We look for appropriate opportunities to ask for forgiveness. Confession and heart repentance open the way for forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
You know, in Gemünd, there's a stone of remembrance to Hannah's parents that the Lord led us to erect. We went to the Castile del Rey group there to pray. And as we prayed at that stone, I saw this German couple come forward to Hannah. And they said to Hannah, Hannah, we want to ask you for your forgiveness for what our people did to you and your people. And they embraced. And Hannah said to me, when that woman embraced her, Hannah felt like she's never going to let her go. (laughs) Jew and German were reconciled. Then here comes his Spanish brother. And he says to Hannah, Hannah, I want to ask for your forgiveness for what the Spanish have done to the Jews. He embraces Hannah. Then here comes this Italian brother, Hannah. And then came the Mexicans. And then came the Americans. And reconciliation is taking place at this stone in the graveyard. And forgiveness is flowing. That's what Jesus wants for his church. We extend forgiveness. Perhaps we are the ones who have been wronged. We learn from Jesus how to leave retribution with God. You know, my time is up. I can't talk about this. But I I, got to say this to you. Because people ask Hannah, how can she forgive? Forgiveness is simply leaving retribution to God. Forgiveness is not minimizing the wrong. You know, Hannah can't say, oh, well, they murdered my parents, but it wasn't really so bad. Biblical forgiveness never denies the wrong. It never minimizes the wrong. But it turns judgment over to God. It says, you know, I'm not going to take retribution in my hands. I leave this to God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I free you. I free you. We come together in deep love. God's kingdom, his rule becomes visible. Those who witness this know only God could have done this. And when we see the kind of reconciliation taking place that these few little stories try to symbolize, It will be obvious to all who see it, who have any kind of discernment at all, this is the hand of God. Something is taking place here that's supernatural. And as that begins to spread throughout the church, spread throughout the church, glory is going to go to God. And the kingdom of God is going to be visible. And having said that, I'd like to give each of you a copy of these notes so that you can take with you. Uh, Danny, do you mind helping me give those out? Thank you. Um, I, I, I brought copies of this with me because I, I, I want you to have this information. Think about it. Pray over it. Ask God to give understanding. When I think about Antioch Network, I can't help but think that somehow God is calling us to play some kind of role in this. I have no idea what that might be. Maybe you who don't have anything to do with Antioch Network, God is giving you a heart. It's going to give you a role in this.
But I believe it's a mega trend of, the, that, of, of something that the Spirit is doing. And the Messianic Church, there is some unique role that the Messianic Church has in this. And also that our Messianic brothers and sisters have in the, in the preaching of the gospel to the, to, the, to the Gentiles. So we'll wait just a minute for everybody to get a copy of that. Council members, please bring those with you to the council meeting. We'll wait just for a minute for everybody to get that, and then Jason will ask you to come up and close that time. Can we stand, please? George, I'm looking on here for... Okay. On page three of those notes... Page three and page four are the seven points that George George just mentioned about the process of reconciliation. Okay. Anybody have two or one you can share? We have some. We ran out at the back. Married couples could just take one and share. Sorry, my faith was not big enough. Bottom of page three, top of page four. You know, in in some ways, the things that George has shared are bigger than we can comprehend. The wounds are deeper than we can imagine. I mean, I, I I've heard Hannah. I I can't imagine. I can imagine what her parents suffered. Uh, I mean, I can imagine them putting on her train. Oh, it's just way beyond. Our experience. There's a lot of things that are beyond our experience. And um, most of the things that happen to us as we walk with Christ, the further we go, the more we realize that we're involved in things that we we didn't really sign up for. (laughs) And that we wouldn't have done and we don't think we can do. So the best thing to do is to offer ourselves to Christ. And on the basis of these seven points that George has suggested, it may be that God will use us at some point in some relationship, sitting next to somebody in a restaurant, in a prayer, when you see a news story come across the front headlines of the paper, or, or speaking the truth when children or grandchildren ask you something, stopping with the prompting of the Spirit at some point in your life, Let's offer ourselves to be instruments of peace. And if we could, I'll read the first uh, sentence of, of these process of reconciliation. If we could repeat them together, let's offer ourselves along these lines. I'll, I'll read it. If you'll repeat it after me. And let's pause for a few seconds for it to soak in. And, and if, you, if you can, one hand or another, just kind of offer, Lord, however you want to use me with this point. Is that okay? If, you, if, you're, if there's some hesitation there, but uh, then you're free not to. But. Jesus, we invite you into our midst. Let's pause and 
Lord, we only you can heal. Only you can heal. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. How you'd use us here. Number two, Jesus, we want to listen compassionately to each other's stories. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Help us. Help us, Lord. Please deliver us from our cultural blinders, the foolishness, the wounds that we don't even realize we have that are shaping our judgment. Deliver us, Lord. Lord, we want to confess the truth. You are the truth. Help us, Lord, to measure our own actions, to speak truth in the midst of lies, to take captivity thoughts which exalt themselves against the knowledge of Christ. Help us, Lord. Number four. We seek to make restitution where possible. Help us, Lord. Number five. We look for appropriate opportunities to request forgiveness. Have mercy upon us, Lord, and make us a people for whom forgiveness is is a constant outflow. We just center ourselves in the truth that you have spoken. Those whom we forgive are forgiven. And we don't want to withhold forgiveness. We extend, number six, we extend forgiveness. Number seven, we come together in deep love. Now, Father, these things, we don't even know all we're confessing. We don't know how this applies to the divisions that go deeply rooted through the centuries, through our own souls, and affect our own witness. We just say, Lord, help us, deliver us, make us instruments of peace. Help us, Lord. Tonight, as Hannah settles down for a night of rest, give her your peace. And I just think, Lord, of um, our own president who stood beside the the Holocaust survivor and the son of a Holocaust uh, victim a few weeks back. Make our nation 
an instrument of peace and reconciliation. Give grace and counsel and wisdom beyond human capacity. Break through in the congregations of your people. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. We offer ourselves to you.